Today's program is brought to you by the Dairy Farm Families of Wisconsin, the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Did you know that today Wisconsin produces more than 600 varieties, types, and styles of American, international style, and original cheese that win more awards than any other state or country? To learn more, visit eatwisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Arway, and today is a gloomy, sort of hailing, sleeting Sunday in Brooklyn, but in a couple days... It'll be Valentine's Day, which is uh, the biggest day for roses, perhaps, um, and buying chocolate. So uh, there's actually no denying that there's an association between chocolate and uh, feelings of lust. And I'm really excited to um, mention a little tidbit, because last week we were talking about oysters, and there is a... Um, a tidbit from the book about how Casanova, the Venetian uh, 18th century 18th century traveler, had eaten copious amounts of oysters to uh, get into the mood, if you will. And um, in the book I'm holding right now, <laughs> there is also a mention of Casanova eating copious amounts of chocolate uh, for the same exact reason. Um, so the book I'm holding right now is Bread, Wine, Chocolate, The Slow Loss of Foods We Love by Simon Seti, but... We already had this show last year on Valentine's Day when Simran came in, but however, she has continued to talk and write and speak about chocolate and many other um, food systems issues and biodiversity, and she has recently launched a new podcast all about chocolate called The Slow Melt. So Simran is joining us again this Valentine's Day episode, and I'm so excited to have you on air. Hi, Simran. Hi, Kathy. Great to be back. Yeah, thanks for joining us again. And it's been quite a year. So you've been, you know, talking about um, subjects explored in your book and beyond um, for the last year or so. Um, You've also been a contributor for many other publications throughout the years. You've done, um, you've been an environmental correspondent for NBC News. You anchored a PBS Quest series on science and sustainability. So, um, it's really interesting that you decided to dedicate a podcast all about chocolate, the slow melts, yeah. just recently. Congrats, yeah, you by know, the way. For me, it's so interesting because everything comes together in chocolate. And I mean, a handful of years ago, I wouldn't have realized this, but it's, you know, through this thick, delicious lens, we can look at environmental issues, we can look at sustainability, we can look at economics, history, identity deliciousness, sexiness. I mean, the list goes on and on. And when I, you know, when I was writing the book, I decided to tell the story of, you know, agricultural biodiversity and changes in food and agriculture through bread, wine, coffee, chocolate, and beer. And Mm -hmm. 
you know, through the research and interviewing people, you know, I was like, oh, my goodness. One of the people I interviewed said, we have loved chocolate our entire lives. And that kind of relationship is so different than one that's learned. And for me, you know, chocolate is something I reach for when I'm sad. I reach for when I'm happy. I celebrate birthdays, my wedding cake, my divorce. You know, I not mm-hmm. celebrated divorce, but <laughs> sad divorce, ate chocolate all the way through. Like, and bomb. And this kind of, yeah, <laughs> life thread. So, uh-huh. So I thought, why not embrace that and and talk about stories through something that people already love? Mm -hmm. I love your first episode, which is up right now. Um, I should mention the podcast, The Slow Melt is on KCRW LA's public radio. Um, and you can listen to the first episode, but uh, there's so much Actually, to cover. Let me jump in mm-hmm. and correct you. I wish it were on KCRW. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh my gosh. I'm sorry. A segment was excerpted. Like a segment oh. of, of an interview I've done for the podcast is available on a program that launched yesterday on KCRW. But the slow melt is on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, through all your traditional podcast outlets, and also through the Public Radio Exchange. Got it. Okay. Uh, thanks for clarifying. But um, it's a wonderful podcast, and I love the, the diversity of topics that you're. it sounds like you're going to cover for the whole series. Um, the first episode was all about the diversity of flavor compounds and um, mm-hmm. how to taste chocolate, which is a really great, you know, uh, sort of... I'm not like a chocolate professional chocolate taster, but um, that was yeah. a really accessible and really fascinating episode. So there's so much to cover. And um, I mean, while we're on the topic of sexiness, though, I have to mention that uh, I was looking through the bread wine chocolate again. Not only is there discussion of Casanova, um, but there's also the Aztecs who invented right. chocolate. And there is a, it's believed that they ritualistically ate cacao off of each other's skin during sex. And <laughs> you know, this is all legend, but it's really, um, it's one that I embrace. And so it's, it's been really Thanks, exciting David. to realize, like, how much. And there's, a, there's new research that's come out. I can't mm-hmm. use the details. They're just fuzzy. But, but that uh, cocoa, cacao, I should say, which is mm-hmm. seeds that becomes chocolate, you know, is also used as a stand-in for blood during human rituals. Okay. And I want to explore that further. But it just, it again all ties into this sort of like yeah. the way it looked once it was roasted. And, and I think those sensations that it elicits, you know, and it's because, I mean, it really is like a chemical thing. Cocoa has flavonoids, which are known for their, you know, antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. It has theobromine, which kind of perks us up like coffee, you know, and anandamide, which drops us back down. Mm -hmm. And then it has tryptophan in it, which is used by our bodies to make serotonin. And, you know, serotonin is a neurotransmitter that helps regulate our moods and sexual function. And and so so those things are all sort of like, it's like almost like the food is conspiring with us, you know, to bring us joy and perk us up. And then it has phenylethylamine, which is um, known as PEA. And it's also been called the love drug. And it's it's sort of simulates that that euphoria of, you know, falling in love. So um, to put it all together and, and chocolate's kind of the total package. And it's good for you too, the antioxidants. I mean, and we're talking, okay, so if I eat like a 99 cent bar of whatever Cadbury cream egg chocolate yeah, <laughs> or yeah. a piece of that, um, I'm not getting as much cacao, right? As right. Okay. I could. First of all, cream egg is not really <laughs> chocolate, you know, so, even though in Easter I mean, is... Easter's one of those big chocolate holidays. So we've got Valentine's, Halloween, and Easter. It's like we're hit, you know we're in the middle of chocolate season. Mm-hmm. But those cocoa-rich um, pieces of chocolate do. You know, yeah. the more cocoa content, the more opportunities for all this, the kind of health benefits yeah. to emerge. But 
you know, it, you don't need to. I mean, most 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 candy bars, you know, have like nine, ten percent cocoa in them, um, and that's all you need to be called like a chocolate bar. But they're not they're not going to have what you find in like a seventy percent right, bar right. or something with a higher cocoa percentage. Okay, so tip out there: if anyone wants to really feel the effects, go for the higher percentage because um, the other ones might not. Yeah. Yeah. Might just make also, you feel full. Tip, if you're eating chocolate for health, like you know, I don't know, maybe you could just like not do that. <laughs> maybe maybe let this be your indulgence and enjoy it for that. You know, I feel like there doesn't have to be a virtue halo on everything. Like, there's really a lot of meaning to like savoring and loving mm-hmm. something, and that also being okay, especially for Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. You know, well, you've eaten a lot yeah. of chocolate in your time, and you seem to be pretty yeah. healthy. So I'm 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 encouraged by that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, you know, this is another thing. Like, I will say one big tip. Mm-hmm. Got, if anyone's trying to, like, go the healthy route with chocolate and choosing one of these weird, like, low-fat chocolates, like, really don't do it. Because ch- chocolate, the cocoa bean is yeah. about 50% fat. Like, cocoa butter isn't dairy butter. It's it's, it's part it, of the constitution not, yeah. of the cocoa bean. Mm-hmm. And, and all the aromas, which is, you know, the dominant part of what we kind of call this experience of flavor, it's all held in the fat. So it's the same thing with cheese. It's like you don't want to eat a low fat cheese. It's like that's where all the good stuff is. Like don't don't the whole point. Fat, yeah, you know? like, <laughs> just eat a little less of it. So that's you know, and I know like eating a little less sounds like you know a, a folly, but I, but I really believe like if you're going to go there, like go for the maximum experience, you yeah. know, and, and stripping away fat from these really amazing things is just like. It's just dulling everything. <laughs> and learned in your podcast, you know, let it melt in your tongue before, you know, so you can yeah. savor the flavor, experience it more and stretch it out. And Exactly. That's from, science, too. That's not yeah. even just me. That's not just conjecture. <laughs> it's really I spoke with a German economist and he talks about there's a chemical process called Strecker degradation. And when you just like chew it up and swallow it quickly, it's not that that can't unfold. So by letting chocolate melt on your tongue, you know, it's going up into your system, into the, you know, back into the retronasal passage. It's, you know, the, the Strecker degradation is allowed to happen. Like everything is released. And so it's just, you know, I mean, if you're going to spend the money and the calories, like, why not, you know, do it right? Why not? So, um, or yeah. if you're like the Aztecs, mm-hmm. you could let it melt on your sex partner's why body. Not? Why not? <laughs> Even if uh, not. <laughs> I'm not sure what that does health-wise, but okay. Um, <laughs> so, okay, a lot of people are going to be buying chocolate, and you recently wrote a piece for the Washington Post a couple of days ago, actually, about uh, all the labels out there. So craft, mm-hmm. what the heck does that mean? And single origin, quality, yeah. um, bean to yeah. bar, these terms that we hear thrown mm-hmm. around. Um Let's talk a little bit about that. Like, how can I know what the heck is craft mean? How can I know that, you know, that's ensuring some sort of higher standard or level of quality or process that's different? Right, right. So this is such an interesting question. And I was really, I mean, just to give a little context, about a year ago, there was this controversy, you know, around these producers out in Brooklyn, Math yep. Brothers. They were making chocolate. And, and all of a sudden there was this big, like, uproar because they weren't making it all of their chocolate. Some of them, they, some of it they were, but from the bean, right? So if you're making chocolate from the bean, you're, you're, you know, you're shelling it, you're mm-hmm. grinding it, you're roasting it. Like, it's a big process. It's the difference between making um, a cake from, like, a Duncan Hines mix or something versus, like, making it from scratch. Yeah. Like, you both made a cake, but they're very different. So, so a lot of people were upset because they were making it from a pre-made curvature. Uh, or or and, did at, at one point in time, and then they, like, exactly, yeah, at one just point. Exactly. But that, they, that, you know, allegedly, you know, there, that there was 
wasn't a lot of transparency around yeah. this. Now, for right. me, as a journalist, it's like, okay, well, most people don't even know, like, what the difference yeah. is. But what I'm concerned about is that all of a sudden we're supposed to understand this and be mad about it, and no one ever really knew what it meant, you know? And so I started, like, madly interviewing people, chocolate makers, farmers, purveyors, about 50 people to ask them this question, like, what is craft chocolate? Fast forward a year, and I write this piece for the Washington Post because we're no closer to a yeah. universal answer about what this is. And I really I want buyers to understand this as they're going in and making this investment and trying to understand, like, hey, do they like craft chocolate or not? Like, let's be clear, there is no standardized definition. So every bar has a potential to be different. So yeah. it's really worthwhile doing a little bit of research, asking the people if you're in a specialty chocolate shop what they think. You know, if you're just like in a, in a regular, uh, you know, supermarket or grocery store or whatever, like paying attention, maybe picking up your phone, doing a quick Google search, like get a little knowledge about what you're doing because some people have been making craft chocolate for a handful of months, some for you know, well over a decade, like this is a still an emerging, evolving industry, but because the packaging tends to be so beautiful, people, yeah. myself, we as humans are really swayed. So, yeah. um, you know, a, a term like bean to bar is like the new, like, I don't know, buzz term, but, you know, that really just means that you've had oversight from the bean to the bar. And I mean, of course, every hmm. big chocolate manufacturer mm -hmm. has had that same kind of oversight. And I can see that the one I, I hang on that a lot because I can see it going the way of GMO, you know, like then all of a sudden, you know, it's like genetic engineering is one thing. Genetic modification seems to be another. And then people get confused and you have big agriculture saying, well, everything's genetically modified. And then, mm -hmm. you know, which is indeed true. So then, you know, that's kind of the I mean, that's the cornerstone of agriculture. Yeah. We're always trying to improve what we're growing and, and breeding. And so, so for me, I just think it's really important to be clear on those terms. Like, there is, what does artisanal mean? Does it mean someone hand-wrapped something? Does it mean they use traditional methods to process the chocolate? Like, where are Does it mean that you don't have a beard? <laughs> Sorry. Sorry? Okay. That you have a beard? I'm just kidding. Um. Yeah, exactly. Uh. If you know, like, where your chocolate was made, because... Because cocoa comes from a thin band around the equator, right? It right. didn't start with some bearded hipsters in Brooklyn. It started with 90% grown by subsistence farmers, you know, mm -hmm. and 70% of cocoa is grown in West Africa. So, like, like let's give a little reverence to these, like, really poor farmers in places like Ivory Coast and Ghana who have grown this cocoa, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, okay, so, you know, when you see a single origin bar, that's... You know, yeah. that's a word that is actually more easy to grasp than something like craft or whatever, artisanal. Right. Um, Absolutely. I think, well, that's obviously to kind of um, demonstrate the different flavor profiles of this terroir, um, of this right. type of bean, which um, yeah. sounds like that would be coming from a maker who puts a lot of care in it. Is that a good sort of general feeling? Because, um, you know, even if the word single origin it sounds like this isn't really um, a regulated thing. Like you could probably yeah. say single origin and exactly. get away with not being single origin, but it seems like that's a good um, kind of marker of a maker <laughs> who is doing something for taste and so forth. Um, yeah, I yeah. just wrote about yeah. this for the Wall Street Journal, and I love the the trend of single origin is really trying to express that place matters. Yeah, right. That that these beans came from somewhere, not nowhere, and that. That is a distinction between what we call commodity cocoa, right? So the right. definition of a commodity is it's kind of like it's fungible. That's an economic term that means it's interchangeable. So like wheat from right. Kansas is no different than wheat from, you know, uh, 
some other place in the Midwest, which is no different from, you know, and cocoa from, from I don't know, uh, you know, Ghana is no different than cocoa from, from Ecuador and what have you. And so, like, what single origin is trying to say is like there is terroir there is a taste of place in these um in these cocoa beans and we want to express it and recognize it and draw out those flavors Mm -hmm. now right now the origin designation is tends to be just like country um Mm -hmm. you know that it's very broad right and within a country you will have i mean hundreds of different flavors just like in coffee we get farm specific but with cocoa in order to properly ferment cocoa, you need like a significant amount of beans. So oftentimes, because people are producing, you know, growing smaller lots of cocoa, they get mixed together. So we haven't gotten that kind of micro specificity that we mm. might see. There certainly could be more detail than we're finding right now. But but for the most part, you'll see like Ecuador or yeah. Venezuela, right. and, and so we have these broad brushstrokes mm-hmm. of kind Ethiopia. of what flavors mean. Yeah. Hmm. All right. Let's talk a lot more about this. I want to talk about the origins of uh, cacao, where it's grown and where it's going to be in the future right after a quick little commercial break. And this one is called Casanova by Tom Cruise. We'll be right back. Today's program is brought to you by the Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board. Wisconsin produces the world's best cheese, period. Why? Lush grasslands, glacial water supply, fourth-generation cheesemakers, combining old-world tradition with the new ideas and highest standards. The very best milk. What do you think of when you think of Wisconsin cheese? For me, I think cheese curds, delicious fresh cheese curds, or deep fried cheese curds. Cheese curds literally any way, any time, any place. I think about Andy Hatch and Upland's Cheese Company, the operation behind the Pleasant Ridge Reserve cheese that's literally America's most awarded cheese. I think of the deliciously stinky Limburger and its long-storied history. I think about Raleigh's Dumbarton Blue, a perfect blend of English-style cheddar and notes of blue. I think of Emmy Roth's Grand Cru Chirchois, which was named 2016's World Champion at the World Championship Cheese Contest. Wisconsin is like the world champion of cheese, and once you start reading the list of cheeses made in Wisconsin on their website, you can see why. The Wisconsin Milk Marketing Board is a nonprofit organization funded entirely by Wisconsin's dairy farm families. Read more at eatwisconsincheese.com, and as soon as you're done listening to this podcast, eat Wisconsin cheese. It's a no-brainer. Hey, hey, we're chatting more with Simran Sethi. She is the author of Bread, Wine, Chocolate and also the host of the new podcast, The Slow Melts, Exploring Chocolate. So, Simran, hi. You still with us? Hi. All right. Oh, gosh. I'm like off in cheese land now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of Wisconsin. That's and thanks, awesome. Yeah. Thanks for the Casanova uh, musical interlude, David, by the way. Our engineers having fun <laughs> yeah. with us. Tom Cruise. Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Um, so it, it was really funny when I mentioned that, you know, when I when we're chatting about having you back on the show for Valentine's Day because we could talk about chocolate. I think it was really funny that you were like, oh, it's perfect because it's also Black History Month and chocolate. Yeah. There's so many things to talk about with chocolate with that. I was like, really? <laughs> but then you went on to say, you know, how a lot of the cacao today is grown in Africa. Um, yeah, tell us a little bit yeah. more about that. Because it used to be, it's a Most South American the- product. It's native to well, South America, right? 
It's it's yes. It's, so the the kind of the center of origin, it, which is the place where cocoa was born, is this kind of bean shaped area crossing Ecuador and Peru and up into Colombia. It's an Amazonian product. But mm-hmm. I think what a lot of people don't know, and this is this is exactly the same thing with coffee, right? We think about coffee, and most of us think conjure up like I don't Aztecs. Know, I don't know if you remember these commercials, but there were these Juan Valdez commercials, uh, right? Okay. We think it comes from Colombia. So coffee was born in Ethiopia. Mm. And, you know, the kind of the flip of that is while chocolate was born in South America and it, it was domesticated, it became chocolate in Central America. So we, you know, it's, it's a really sort of uh, Latin American product. The place where it comes from now is West Africa. Uh-huh. 70% of our cocoa comes wow. from West Africa, 45% of it just from two countries, from, from Ivory Coast and Ghana. Wow. And I think it's really important, yeah, to realize, and these aren't, this isn't an area that had, um, uh, like a culinary tradition yeah. or, you know, everything we were talking about earlier or, with with uh, the Aztecs and, and, you know, even with the Maya, like there was no historical connection to cocoa. Mm-hmm. And so that's evolving in real time. And one of the things I wrote about in this, in this story um, that I was mentioning on origin is this emerging trend to um, make chocolate in the countries where it's grown. And so, you know, to me, this is a social justice issue. Historically, you know, all these products, these commodities are grown in the global south, and mm. then they're shipped to the global north, right, and that's right. where most of the money is made. You know, mm-hmm. the, the coffee beans are roasted. So the raw materials are, yeah, shipped off to be processed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. And with chocolate, it's the same thing, right? Like most people, when they think of chocolate, the person who comes to mind or the company is like, Dandelion I don't know, maybe one sitting in Hershey, yeah. Pennsylvania, okay. or in a <laughs> shop up, you know, up in Brooklyn. Like there's not a lot of awareness of, of the hands that have touched it before that point. So so for me, this really is like about reclaiming like the role, the centrality of Africa in some of the foods and drinks that we really love deeply, you know, and have mm-hmm. no real, maybe don't have a lot of awareness of. Yeah. Do you see any efforts to kind of create more um, uh, integrated uh, I don't know, is it possible to have, you know, um, a fully integrated I don't know if this is a naive thought, like maker who also is close to the growers uh, or is the same. I I don't know. Yes. And that's what I love so much because it it really, it changes the paradigm. If if Mm -hmm. you're, if there is a lot of, if there are a lot of people consuming that chocolate in the place where it's grown, you're having that immediate feedback, first of all, from the consumers. And it's really, you know, I... One of my favorite interviews we've done so far for the Slow Melt is with Jillian Goddard. She's a farmer in Trinidad, and she talks about, it's on show two, she talks about how, um, you know, like what it means for the identity of the farmer, that like historically farmers are still have lower status than, than someone like a chocolate maker. And so for these farmers in her community to actually not only grow the cocoa, but actually go so far as to become small cocoa chocolate makers has really kind of transformed how they're perceived. Yeah. So I think even if you don't have those things happening interchangeably, like farmer becoming maker, what you see is a real like a real kind of um, shift in, in sort of what it means to grow the product because it's something that that there does seem to have more pride in yes. kind of producing. Mm-hmm. And, and that these chocolates that are being produced are, you know, they're world-class chocolates. We're talking about some, like, I mean, my favorite makers are, are makers from, from places of origin, like right. cacao hunters in Colombia, Maru in Vietnam, like, 
these chocolates are fantastic, and they're they're employing people locally. They're keeping money in the local economy, and they're helping those farmers who are there better understand like what happens to that crop that they grow. So you can you bask become something yeah. magical that they now have a much closer relationship to, and they can take part in basking in the glory of you know. Uh, when it wins an award, say, at a, a fancy chocolate comp- competition, um, it's really weird to have, you know, no participation in that, I guess, um, you yeah. know, as we're tasting. That's in- changing, too. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, there's an amazing effort that's being led called um, Cocoa of Excellence. It's it's analogous to what happens in coffee with this um, with this uh, initiative called Cup of Excellence, and it really is meant to reward the farmer. Like, we have all these great chocolate contests, you know, the International Chocolate Awards, the Good Food Awards that are giving credit to the makers. But what the the Cocoa of Excellence program is doing is actually rewarding the farmers. The, and the hope, of course, is that that recognition will help them be able to charge more for that crop, which is exactly what happens with Cup of Excellence. You know, yes. those become award-winning coffees that go on to be sold at a price premium. So, so hopefully that same thing will happen now um, with coffee with with Cocoa of Excellence. That's fantastic. And you see that going hand in yeah. hand with the food movement. You know, exalting the farmers who actually grew it, not just the chefs who. Uh, yeah. prepared it so um, I think that's that's a really cool trend and um, I'd love to learn more about um, also what's going on with this impending chocolate shortage or cacao shortage uh, in the world yeah. everybody so, got know, all alarmed I'm, I'm, last uh, year uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm, my, I'm working on a story right now mm-hmm. that I've entitled uh, too much chocolate too little chocolate that's the rough title right okay. because this is folly. I mean, in the sense of just like, you know, a year ago, two years ago, we were hearing like chocolate is the end is near, right? The yes. end times for chocolate. Yeah. Chocogeddon, all this Prices stuff. Prices are going to start um, skyrocket. Yeah. Today, what, you know, people, what it's, I mean, it's in the paper literally today. Um, yay, chocolate prices. We have too much chocolate. Chocolate prices are at historic lows. Yay, guys, <laughs> buy more chocolate. You know, celebrate. This is awesome. And I want to take it back to the farmer again because yeah. this is the opposite of awesome. You know, oh, no. what, what, what we saw before, first of all, with this notion of um, the world running out of chocolate, I want to address first. With climate change, we're going to see a lot of changes in chocolate. But that that sort of um, that model was based on a, a very, um, I don't know, a clear trajectory of consumption mm-hmm. in places like Asia, right? So the idea was like, woo, you know, the Indians, Simran's people, and, you know, your They're people. Eating you know, like, they, yeah. They're eating chocolate, yeah. We're going to start eating massive amounts of chocolate, <laughs> and all of a sudden the world's going to run out of chocolate, you know, because China and India are going to just, like, their demand is going to grow exponentially. Well, it grew, but it didn't grow exponentially, and it's kind of leveled. And Got meanwhile, it. we're seeing a little bit, you know, that same kind of flatness in North America and in Europe. So, so that didn't happen. And then we had, you know, some really wonderful harvests where there was an abundance of cocoa, which, you know, I mean, I've always found this really weird that, like, farmers doing their job and then the Mother Nature cooperating results in a bumper crop and then the price drops, right? And mm-hmm. so... It's almost like you're being rewarded for doing everything right, but you're being punished, I should say, for doing everything right. So now what we find is an oversupply in West Africa. Oh, and, um, and and because the prices were set earlier on these contracts to farmers and were set at higher prices because they assumed there was going to be less of a supply, um, some, some um, people are backing out of those contracts, which is leaving even more cocoa just sitting at the port. <sighs> 
also the price is dropping, dropping. Now, if you're already a farmer at the margins and that price is going even lower, I mean, you're talking about like just to give like some sense of perspective. When we spend a buck on a on a candy bar or a chocolate bar, yeah. about three to six cents goes back to the farmer, yeah. right? About fifty percent goes back to the manufacturer. But you're talking about a tiniest sliver yeah. going back, and so um, so this isn't this volatility isn't like full of joy. This doesn't make me happy. The price is already too low, frankly, for chocolate, and to see it dropping further because of this now oversupply, um, I just think it's something we shouldn't be celebrating. And I think it's it's really important. I'm speaking to the the head economist at the International Cocoa Organization um, on Friday, right. mm-hmm. and he was saying, you know, th- those stories were were quite like we kept saying, like, please don't do that. Like that's not the case. Case. You know, it's not that dramatic. Mm-hmm. And so Gosh. storytellers, you know, we have something to do with that when we when we kind of go to that extreme of saying like, danger, danger, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> it's disappearing. Like that wasn't exactly true. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of economic modeling. And then it kind of, you know, maybe it just got goes on a to show how much there. people love chocolate that, you know, they're so alarmist when things like this yeah. happens. It goes yeah. around and around. Um, yeah. Well, thank and you I for, get it. Like, mm-hmm. we want to try to make people understand climate change is real, right? So right. it's hard to talk about an abstract. But if you say, like, hey, guys, your coffee and your chocolate are going to disappear, <laughs> of course there are models that show us this stuff. And I myself have said stuff that's a little bit like, hey, this is going to go away if we don't do something. Right, it's right. true, but it's not, it's, not, it's not like imminent tomorrow, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that's maybe where things got a little bit out of hand um, and have resulted in something that's that's really tricky for farmers now. Hey, well, if it's a gateway to kind of understanding the complexities more behind cacao and uh, so forth, that's great. And I love that you're going to explore this more um, and share with us, too, soon. So we'll have to keep an eye out for that article. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, it'll be an article and we'll have, I think I'm so eager to talk about this now, I think show number four of the Slow Melt will be dedicated to these economics and helping yeah. all of us understand this because it's not just exclusive to cocoa, right? Every time you hear about these things, this is, you know, I want us to kind of re- understand and, and have revealed what, what these booms and busts really mean um, yeah. in terms of like what we eat and, and the people who grow what we eat. Should I look to fair trade as being helpful in determining, you know, who's uh, is that a helpful label, would you say, yeah, you at this know, point? All these certifications, and, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I hate to keep saying, like, oh, and then it'll be on the show again, <laughs> but it really will. I mean, I want consumers to be informed and empowered, right? Mm-hmm. I feel like we're operating in this vacuum, and it's really unfair and uncool. And without this knowledge, we can't make good decisions. And so we're plunking down money for something that may or may not be very delicious, um, and so what kind of, like, what can help us? When yeah. it comes to certifications, um, there is, of course, oversight here. But, but if you're looking for the most, um, I don't know, flavorful varieties of, of chocolate, they may not necessarily be certified. So what I want people to remember is, like, when it comes to fair trade, it's an economic instrument, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's intention is to ensure that, that farmer cooperatives are paid a fair wage for the cocoa that they grow. Um, and that is a wonderful thing. And in the absence of all other information, I think certifications are a great way to know that, like, someone cares about something. And, and there is there is something to be said for that. But I also really like the emerging trend in this, you know, ill-defined craft chocolate movement mm. of um, of makers really having those more direct relationships with farmers, and yes. for lack of a kind of a better term, what we see in coffee is the direct trade movement. And so Got I'm going to use okay. that term here as well, mm-hmm. which is just 
there are smaller cocoa brokers um, that are actually working directly with farmers to help improve their post-harvest techniques and to help them get a fair price for their cocoa beans, but they may not be the same kinds of certifications that you've heard of. They may not be UTS or Rainforest Alliance or um, okay. Fair Trade, but... but they're a different quality of relationship. And, I mean, at the end of the day, we're trusting these makers and manufacturers. We're putting what they make in our bodies. And, and so I would like to believe in that relationship and foster those a little bit more deeply. And, and there's some great chocolate makers out there that are really, I mean, Dandelion, for example, out in San Francisco has created a sourcing report. Wow. And you can look and see where every one of their cocos comes from. And they're beautiful stories, really yeah. like great consumer information, gorgeous photos, helping us to understand like the bigger story of the farm. Taza Chocolate does the same thing. Um, I, you know, I love what they're doing and how they've also supported farmers. So there's there's some companies, Askinosi, these are ones that are really committed to helping helping consumers, you know, chocolate eaters and lovers also feel that connection all the mm. way back to the farm. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's something that to look for. If that's something you value, that's something to consider as well. Definitely. And it shows that, you know, they're trying their best to create the best product, I would say, um, you know, to works so uh, high touch with those maker uh, with farmers yeah. and so forth so yeah you know it's so interesting in mm-hmm. in my coffee chapter in the book there's a gentleman named Peter Giuliano and he says um, coffee that is made without this kind of attention and care isn't great coffee like mm-hmm. and what he was getting at was this idea that like the relationships are what make it delicious and great mm-hmm. and I really I really believe in that you know mm-hmm. like the construct of flavor is really malleable. It depends on the lighting, the shape of the bowl, who we're with. I mean, there's so many things that influence how we experience something. But part of that is the story. And um, and for me, that's a critical part because I want to know that the kinds of things that I'm eating have been made, you know, with care and, and mm-hmm. consideration for all the people through the supply chain, you know, who are mm-hmm. helping us get yeah. get that glorious cup of coffee or that wonderful bar of chocolate or whatever it is. I feel like we've come full circle. Now, relationships are the thing that makes great chocolate so great. (laughs) I think that's something. Yeah, and the relationship we have with it, like, right, the slow melt. (laughs) Yeah. How we relate to it in our mouth. Yeah. I'm I'm still thinking about those Aztecs, though. Anyway, uh, (laughs) um, I guess that's about all the time we have for today, but I can't wait to keep listening and reading your work. so everyone check out the slow melts, which you can da- you can listen to on iTunes, Stitcher. Just check it out. You'll find Simran Sethi's uh, lovely voice out there. And um, all right. Well, anything else, Simran, from you? Kathy, oh, happy Valentine's <laughs> Day. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> and happy Valentine's Day, everyone at Heritage. Uh, have a great <laughs> week, and we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.